appreciate you joining, uh, reading the word for us. Thank you. Did a fantastic job. Uh, Braxton did a great job uh, giving the word this morning in the first service. And uh, I would just thank you so much for all the students and the way that you guys are serving, the way that you guys are leading us this morning in worship. And um, uh, so recently I was having a uh, conversation uh, with a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine. Uh, I won't give his name. He specifically asked me not to say his name. Um, but we had just uh, both recently seen uh, a whodunit murder mystery film on Netflix called Glass Onion. Uh, it's a Knives Out film. It's like a sequel to a movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, and it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. We were just having this conversation, sharing our sentiments on it. And I realized I just, that's a genre I enjoy is, uh, is uh, whodunit. Murder mystery, that kind of thing. I, when, when I was in college, I did a few, mur- uh, one or two murder mystery parties and I got dressed up and like, you know, you play the role, it's a lot of fun. Uh, here's a few examples. You know, there's Knives Out, I mentioned that one. That's a, that's a pretty contemporary one. And then there's, uh, you know, Agatha Christie type ones, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, and then there's uh, Sherlock Holmes. He's a classic, you know, he likes to figure out who did it. And he gets, he gets elated, he gets excited about the opportunity to challenge his intellect. He loves uh, to be able to solve mysteries. Uh, and there's plenty of those stories that I haven't seen or read or heard, but we were having this conversation about this one, uh, specifically Glass Onion. And I had said I enjoyed it. I liked uh, how at the end of the movie, it kind of wasn't what I was expecting. You know, like, that's the best part about a mystery film is that it never quite goes the way you're expecting, and yet it kind of leaves the breadcrumbs out for you still. So maybe they'll do a montage at the end of the movie or something like that to say like, oh, it was uh, so-and-so in the hot dog factory, and he had a knife, and he did it. You know, like, oh, I don't. I should have seen that coming. I wouldn't have even known. And the second time you watch the movie, like, it makes a lot more sense since you already know the, the, the clues. Um, and then so as we're talking about this, uh, he asked me this question. He says, um, do you think there's a difference between being mysterious, a, a movie with good mystery, uh, and being confusing, right? So is there a difference between mysterious and confusing? And I thought it was an interesting question. And the way that he posed it, I was thinking in the context of film. We were talking about movies. And so I kind of think about it for a second. And... Um, and I, and, and I kind of spitball an answer. I was like, yeah, I do think there's a difference. I, I, uh, I think a, mysteri- a good mystery movie, uh, like I said, it lays out the breadcrumbs for you. Uh, and then when you get to the end, there's a, a degree of satisfaction. There's a degree of intrigue throughout the film that like, draws you to the conclusion of the movie. Whereas a confusing movie, uh, I would say if a movie is just purely confusing, then it uh, just doesn't do a very good job of explaining its plot to you. It's not that it's trying to hide things from you. It's that it's, uh, it's not revealing the things very well. And so that was my... Diff- that was my uh, uh, defining of these two terms. Mysterious is intriguing. It draws you into the answer. Confusing is frustrating. It it, it kind of disinterests you after a while. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> so he, he nods, he, he kind of like accepts my answer, he, he likes it, and then he says, good, I'm glad you said that, I'm glad you agree, because my wife tells me that I don't get her because she's confusing, and then I, or because she's mysterious, but I said, no, I don't understand you because I find you incredibly confusing. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I, hold on a second, I thought we were talking about movies. I didn't realize that I was now speaking into your marriage here, so I'm going to give you some advice now. Drop it. <laughs> don't, don't bring it up to her that like, I'm, I'm giving you ammunition to affirm, uh, to affirm your position on this argument. She wants to be seen as mysterious. It's not, it's not in your best interest to tell her that she's confusing. Uh, but <laughs> because no one, no wife, no woman, I'm not, I'm not a married man, but I understand very well that no woman likes to be considered confusing rather than mysterious. There's something alluring about mystery. There's something frustrating about confusion, and I think we all kind of have an innate understanding of that. Um, but like I said, that natural allure of mystery, maybe it's puzzles, maybe it's uh, Rubik's Cubes. Like I, I figured out how to do a Rubik's Cube. A friend of mine, I was on a bus ride with a friend of mine in, in middle school, and he, t- and he taught me how to do the Rubik's Cube. And now that thing is no longer uh, confusing, but it's actually a mystery that I've solved uh, with the help of my friend. He gave me, gave me the tricks and the tips. 
Uh, maybe it's Wordle, your daily Wordle, or uh, maybe it's your Sudoku puzzles or your crosswords or whatever. You know, there's, there's a thousand ways to uh, be intrigued by different puzzles and then uh, come to, uh, you know, these solutions because it's, it's drawing you in, whereas uh, something of confusion repels you, it frustrates you. And I preface, it, I preface this all day today because uh, we're going to be talking about mystery, we're going to be talking about confusion, and we're going to be talking about how Jesus uh, is a great mystery, even in the air, even in a time of confusion. Now, uh, what we just uh, heard, a seemingly confusing passage of scripture uh, from Keegan, is, is Jesus' baptism. If Jesus was sinless, why was Jesus baptized? It kind of raises a big question there. Mark Moore, uh, this is actually two weeks ahead in your Quest 52 reading, but uh, the question two weeks from now, I got permission from Tyson to kind of skip a week, and uh, in this particular message, uh, or in this particular chapter, Mark Moore poses the question, if Jesus is sinless, why was Jesus baptized? I think it's a really good question. And I chose this particular week. I I opted to take this week uh, to do this message in particular. Uh, Because I think as we're all gathered together in this room, Family Sunday with mothers and fathers and their children, as we're we're gathered in the room and we're finishing up a series on Focused on Jesus, what better way to be focused on Jesus than to witness the Trinity in all its fullness, right? The the, the dove upon Jesus' shoulder and, and the voice of God echoing and the Son of God present in physical form. I think this story in particular, this chapter, that Jesus' baptism actually answers some serious questions, uh, serious questions about who God is, uh, what God is doing, who Jesus is, and what we are called to. But the reality is, before, before Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, Israel finds itself in a confusing time, the kind of confusion that leads to frustration. Israel's in a time of waiting. They are looking for this Messiah uh, who is supposed to bring the kingdom of God. One that is meant to be everlasting, uh, meaning that nobody will ever dare to overthrow them. Uh, On on multiple occasions, however, uh, Israel has been trampled under the feet of earthly powers. God has made a promise to Israel that I will make an everlasting kingdom out of you. And still, over and over again, they they become the subject of some greater kingdom on earth. First it was Egypt. Okay, and then Moses gets them out of uh, out of Egypt uh, through the Exodus. Now what? Then it's this constant fighting with the Philistines and the neighboring nations. And then okay, so we have great kings like David who who lead us in the charge to victory. Uh, but then after a while, there are bad kings that come in. There are good kings, and it results in some division uh, in in Israel. Later on, a couple centuries later, it's Persia and Babylon, and now Israel's being exiled from their land. They're being removed from Israel entirely. I thought our great kingdom was supposed to be in Israel, the promised land, and yet. You're drawing us out. Okay, but the exile's over. They eventually go home. Uh, Maybe they can just breathe a bit. Maybe they can enjoy their eternal kingdom finally. Well, actually, Alexander the Great shows up just a few centuries later, uh, (laughs) and he puts everyone under his thumb. Okay, well, now I'm really confused. And then Alexander the Great dies, and then then Greece is there, and uh, and then Judas Maccabeus, a great Jew, he leads a revolt against Greece. And so now uh, Israel is victorious again. Uh, Clearly, uh, Judas Maccabeus is meant to be our great Messiah. Well, Judas Maccabeus dies a couple years later. Oh, no. (laughs) What are we supposed to do? Will it ever happen, God? You made a promise to us. Will it ever happen? I'm pretty confused about what's going on right now. Now, the mystery of God's promise, the allure and hope of what God is doing with the Jewish people, that mystery is turning into confusion, is turning into frustration. God, why haven't you done what you said you would do? A question I myself have asked before, a question you've asked before. God, I'm, I'm losing patience. Uh, I've been waiting a long time, and I don't know how much longer I can hold on here. I, I need something. Give me, give me a clue. Give me a sign, you know. 
Some of you know that desperation. Some of you feel that desperation today. Some students in the room, maybe you're wrestling with uh, maybe something as simple as grades. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's uh, figuring out what you're going to do about college. Maybe it's your family's falling apart and your parents are getting a divorce. To the adults in the room, maybe your health is failing. Um, maybe you're wondering, uh, you know, why these particular relationships, why my family uh, doesn't want me as a part of the family. Maybe uh, there's just uh, finances and money is, is an issue. The mystery and allure of God may seem a lot like confusion to us and frustration when in his wisdom he doesn't allow us to see what he's planning. He conceals what he's doing. But then, out of the wilderness comes a man named John the Baptist. And he preaches about one who is to come after him, one who baptizes his followers for the sake of repentance. And he's warning everyone, hey, everyone, keep your eyes and your ears peeled because this one that's coming is greater than I and I'm not even fit to untie his straps, his sandals. The one we've been waiting for, the one that all of history has been anticipating, he's drawing near. So there's this moment of anticipation again. The confusion turns to intrigue. And then Jesus arrives at the Jordan. Talk about focused on Jesus, right? I bet uh, John couldn't even... uh, divert his gaze when he's looking at at Jesus as he appears at the Jordan. I have this picture of John the Baptist in my head a little bit, maybe you do too, where, you know, he's he's a guy who lives out in the wilderness. He probably doesn't get a whole lot of socialization. Uh, He probably doesn't smell that great. He eats locusts and honey, and everyone's like, what is going on with this guy's diet? His breath is real bad. And I just kind of have this, like, picture that he's, like, a little bit, you know, spastic. He's, like, every six-year-old in the room right now. (laughs) He's, 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 like, baptized. You know, I I don't don't know. He just seems a little, little quirky. And yet, I imagine when Jesus walks and shows up on the scene, he stopped dead in his tracks. I imagine when Jesus shows up, he pauses. And Jesus asks to be baptized by John. Well, that's confusing, isn't it? Jesus, I preach a baptism of repentance. What do you have to repent for? You should be baptizing me. You are the embodiment of human righteousness and purity. And Jesus replies, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. So John concedes and uh, Christ uh, continues, uh, sorry, John concedes and he does it and into the water and out of the water comes Jesus and the mystery of Christ begins its unraveling. Mark Moore in the chapter, he'll call this Christ's inauguration. Uh, Now, we have a particular picture of what inauguration means in our context, right? It's very ceremonious every 4th of January or so. There's a uh, president being sworn in, a vice president being sworn in. There's thousands of people gathered, congressmen, all types of other people from D.C. And, 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 you know, it's very ceremonious. A lot of people are watching. A lot of people are witnessing uh, as someone is taking the office of president. And we have that picture in our head, but I can't totally imagine. I can't totally capture what exactly happens here. Matthew writes about the baptism of Jesus this way. We, we heard from Mark, but this is what Matthew has to say. He says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens are opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. More than a president sworn in, more than a king taking a throne, this is the God of heaven and earth, identifying his Son, fully revealing to all who are witnessing and establishing in full view the authority of Christ over his creation. This one is divine. We haven't seen the Trinity like this on full display since Genesis 1, even before man is created. As the voice of God wills creation into existence and as the Spirit of God hovers over the waters and as the Son of God upholds, sustains, and maintains all things by the word of his power. This moment is not merely inauguration. This is revelation, God revealing himself revealing his mystery 
This is God unraveling the mystery. So what does it mean? Well, at a watershed moment like this, I would suggest it means that it's time. A new creation has come. If you're curious about why specifically Jesus needs to be baptized here, I would point you to Matthew's account of the event again, because John is concerned about that too. In Matthew 3, it says, uh, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. What does fulfill all righteousness mean? The phrase seems vague, uh, not directly elaborated upon in the text. Uh, then John says, okay. So like, that's all we really get, to fulfill all righteousness, and John consents, and then he baptizes them, and that's kind of the extent of this particular chapter. Again, there's some more confusion there, especially in John's baptism and how we understand baptism of repentance. What does Jesus have to repent for? What sin does Jesus have? None, of course. This is an essential truth of the church, of the gospel, that Jesus is a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. And yet, only a few years later, Jesus will suffer and he will die, and he will bear the burden of all sin upon his shoulders. This is also an essential truth of the church, that the entirety of the sin of mankind was placed on Christ, and he died an undeserving death. But after doing this, he is raised to life again three days later. Having left sin and death in his grave, this is what we call the gospel, the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, and you might hear that word righteousness again, to fulfill all righteousness. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mark Moore suggests in this book that uh, the act of Jesus' baptism is not to forgive his own sin, of which he had none, but actually to foreshadow his death and his resurrection, in which he would willingly bear our sin upon his shoulders in our stead. I think this interpretation by Moore is entirely fair, considering how interested Jesus is consistently uh, to reveal exactly what he's doing uh, to his disciples. Uh, I mean, there are, there are three occasions in Matthew. There's three occasions in Mark, three occasions in Luke. They're all parallel passages in which Jesus tells them specifically, I am going to Jerusalem, and I will be uh, betrayed by the scribes and the priests and the prophets, and then uh, I will be suspended on a cross, I will be crucified, and in three days I will raise to life. And each time this happens, the, the disciples are like, I, I don't get it. I what you know like and then and then so he does this three times at one point Peter even like rebukes him like he even like challenges Jesus like what do you mean you're going to reign eternally uh and then Jesus uh, says get behind me Satan so so Jesus is pretty committed to this he's pretty committed to making it making the case to you very clearly that the mission the goal of Christ is to die and to be raised to life and then when he actually is crucified, when he actually uh, is killed, uh, Jesus is in the grave. And for three days, the, the disciples are in a panic. Like they totally forgot three times I told you this. There are three times I told you this, that this was going to happen. And you're in a panic. And then, and then Jesus shows up and they're all, oh, what? That's crazy. Like you, you thought it was like a Sherlock Holmes thing, but it's more like Scooby-Doo. You know, like this is like a Saturday morning cartoon. It's very obvious what I'm doing. And of course, it's easy for me to say 2,000 years after the fact that it was very easy for the, like, the, the disciples weren't paying attention or whatever. You know, it's easy for me to say that uh, 2,000 years after the fact, reading the text. But I think it just shows how interested Jesus is in revealing and foreshadowing what he's doing. He wants to reveal to us his salvation and work. The time for waiting and wondering how God is going to deliver us from the oppression of sin and death is over. He's revealing to us. Christ, the mystery, revealed to us. 
Jesus' baptism reveals his death and resurrection. You and I can rest assured that Jesus' death was no hiccup in God's ordained plan. It was the plan. It was Christ's intention, and it even models to us how we might also join with him in death and resurrection through our own baptism. He is demonstrating to us in his baptism the means by which salvation will come to us. Jesus' baptism reveals God's plan of salvation. Isaiah 53, this iconic prophecy, seven centuries uh, before Jesus even comes onto the scene, uh, it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the Son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now the mystery of God's salvation is coming to light. In a time of confusion for the nation of Israel, God is unraveling a mystery. And the baptism of Jesus is just the beginning of that unraveling. The word mystery here uh, is used throughout the New Testament to describe Jesus himself as he is revealed to the world. The Greek word mysterion implies a hidden thing which is now being seen. It's now being revealed to us. And Paul says it this way in uh, 1 Timothy 3. He says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So maybe Israel was frustrated and confused, and what seemed like God's silence It seemed like there were no clues, like there were no answers, that God wasn't listening. But here in the Jordan River, something intriguing is happening instead. God is revealing his mystery. The time for confusion is over. And not only is Jesus' baptism foreshadowing the death and resurrection, but it also reveals to us the full extent of Christ's nature and authority. This isn't just a guy with a sword and a good strategy. This is God himself. The heavens are rent apart And God affirms the identity of Christ as his son, with whom God is pleased. That's intriguing. The deity of Christ has been a topic of great debate throughout church history, but we've always come to the same conclusion, according to the apostles, according to the epistles, according to the the writing of the New Testament. The deity of Christ is affirmed. He was begotten, yes, born of Mary, but he was not made. He was not created. He was there at the beginning of creation. He will be there at the end of creation. He will be there forevermore, exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus is God. God is revealing the mystery about himself by revealing his son, by revealing this part of the Trinity. This moment in particular is a revelation of the nature and character of who God is because Christ himself is divine. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Colossians. He affirms this hymn to them. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, he might be first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, again, like I said, this is a hymn. This is, this is a song. These words that Paul is writing, this is, this is a, a, a well-known shared song among the early church. Uh, the Colossian church especially is guilty of something called uh, syncretism, which is essentially just the fusing of beliefs. So they, they receive the gospel from Paul, and then the church is also mixing in some spiritualism, some Greek thought, some, uh, some Jewish ideas even as well, uh, that are not in, in, not in line with the gospel that, that Paul preaches to them. 
And there, uh, Colossae, the city, is, is geographically located in kind of a crossroads of culture. A lot, a lot of people are coming in from the north, a lot of people are coming in from the east. Uh, and so there's, there's a melting pot of ideas that are coming, a melting pot of belief systems uh, and doctrines and things like that. And in this heavy crossroads of ideas, beliefs and information, the Colossian church seems to be drowning in the noise. Let me ask you this. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that not sound like the world in which we live today? We live in the information age. There's more information available to us in our pockets today than any library ever stored before the 21st century. Some of it is true. Uh, A lot of it is woefully unreliable. And our ability to parse out the truth is more difficult than ever. Do you think our minds are meant to be flooded with this kind of information overload? I doubt it. Right? We have anxiety and depression that's running rampant. Uh, spiritualism is a growing trend. Uh, excuse me. We make idols of YouTube celebrities. We, we throw different online sources at one another to prove arguments. We consume just endless amounts of 15-second sound bites and act like this is the extent of our necessary information that we need, and we act like this is normal. Ultimately, it raises to us questions about the nature of truth itself. There's growing division in our culture, our churches, and our homes And I'd suggest even greater threats of deception than ever before. And when everyone's voice under the sun can be heard by a tweet or a TikTok, should we be so surprised that the truth so easily gets drowned out in all the noise? For our next generations in the church, we are going to have to be prepared to not be afraid of the world, but be able to discern the world in light of the life of Christ, his death and his resurrection. You will hear more and more ideas day by day, and it's necessary for us to be discerning of the truth. Let discernment be one of the guiding principles of your Christian walk. Be confident in which voice you can trust over all the noise as one voice of full authority. I'm not talking about me, really. I'm not talking about Tyson. I'm not talking about Ben. I'm not talking about anybody here. I'm talking about the voice of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Because the noise of the world leads to syncretism, which leads us astray from the gospel of the resurrected Lord. But we can bear witness at this moment, at this moment right now, in the baptism of Jesus, we can bear witness to know that there is one in authority, There is one with whom God is pleased. There is one with whom we can find reliable news, reliable truth, Jesus Christ himself. Like John the Baptist stopped dead in his tracks, may we find genuine rest in the reality that God's son has come to earth, that he's been revealed to us as such as God's son, that he tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light so that we may uh, be people who take him up on that offer. Paul goes on in Colossians 3, so a few chapters later he says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In joining Jesus in baptism and being raised with Christ out of death, we have the opportunity to fix our eyes upward at the one who is raising us. The mystery is being revealed to us in order that we don't have to wander around confused anymore in the noise, but we can rest content in our answer, Christ himself. Jesus' baptism reveals his authority. So Jesus' baptism reveals God's plan for salvation. It reveals Christ's authority to us. And it, um, but I believe that the baptism of Jesus also serves the purpose of showing us exactly where we're being taken, exactly where Jesus is taking us. Have you ever wondered by chance why it is that baptism, that Greek word baptizo, full immersion beneath the waters, reflects the nature of death, and then rising out of the water demonstrates resurrection with Christ? Have you wondered why that image in particular? There's some historical tradition involved, but I think the, the reasoning is actually just generally present throughout the entirety of Scripture. After all, 
when great waters appear in Scripture, so also does the threat of death and chaos. Of course, there is the flood, the Red Sea. As Israel makes their way out of Egypt, there's the drowning of Jonah as he gets tossed beneath the waves. There's the disciples on the boat as Jesus is sleeping below deck. There's Paul's shipwreck and Acts. The image of the waters is common throughout the biblical story, and more than that, it is commonly threatening. The image itself is a threat to life. I think this is just as true for us today as well. Uh, the oceans of our planet are overwhelmingly unknown. Uh, the, more than 80% of the world's oceans have not been mapped. They've not been explored or even seen by human eyes. I have no idea what's down there. I don't want to know what's down there. Scientists project that there may be as many as 100 million different species found in our oceans, and we've discovered approximately 200,000 right now. So that's only about 0.2% of the ocean species that we have any idea about. And some of those are really weird looking. <laughs> I have a few pictures even for you to kind of get an idea. Of course, the, the, I'll start easy for you. Uh, you know, oh, what a nice family of fish. This is great. You know, this is all beautiful. Uh, mom and babies, whatever. Turtle. Turtles are cool. Turtles are very cool creatures. I like marlin, the goldfish, finding Nemo. That's fun. That's cute. Uh, sharks. Scary, but very respectable. You know, like, I'm, I'm not afraid when I look at one, uh, but when I'm in front of one, I would be very respectful of it. Uh, anglerfish. These things are nightmares. Uh, those are also in Finding Nemo, but that's like the scariest part of the movie. And then, uh, I don't know what that is, so I'm going to be honest with you. It, it weirds me out. Uh, I can't tell if it's big, if it's microscopic. Like, I, I have no idea. It's so deep in the ocean. And I don't know. That's called a blobfish, and it has like a nose. It looks weirdly human. Like, it, it, it is unsettling, but it's the most appropriate name I could think of for it is the blobfish, right? Uh, the ocean uh, is a mystery. <laughs> you know, the, like... We're all, I feel like we hear a lot of news lately about like, oh, UFOs and aliens and things like that. You know, there's like conspiracy theories around there. But I am much more concerned about what I know is here, and that is 80% of the ocean that I don't know. Like, that is a much more concerning threat to me. What is going to come out of the water one day? Like, there's something about Godzilla coming out of the ocean that's like, yeah, that's more believable to me than a UFO coming down from space right now, honestly. The seas are a mystery. I'm more concerned about the bottom of the Mariana than on the outskirts of our solar system. But my point is, I think we all have a general understanding that the ocean is unknown. It's chaotic. And at some level, when we are face-to-face -face with the depths of the waters, it's only natural for us to feel that sense of fear. It's the same fear that causes me to hold my breath uh, in movies when a character's swimming underwater. It's the, the same kind of fear that ensures that we want our children to at least know how to swim. It's the same kind of fear that keeps us from straying too far away from the beach. I believe God has placed that natural fear innately in us, uh, that the way in which God chose to create us in our world, our waters, is to show us something beautiful about himself. Because the beautiful thing about the seas is that even though the waters represent to us chaos, a reason for fear, God is constantly delivering his people out of it. It's not just that the image of the waters in scripture demonstrates chaos, but it's that consistently out of the chaos, God is saving his people from death. Noah and his family. Moses and Israel being uh, crossing the Red Sea, he parts the waters for them. Jonah with the fish. The fish is Jonah's salvation. That's a very important point of that story is that he's drowning, he nearly dies, and the, and the fish is sent by God to rescue Jonah from drowning. Jesus calming the storms. If the water of baptism is death, then the rising out of the waters is that delivery by the grips of, of the hands of Jesus. Not only is Jesus pulling us out of the water, but I also believe that if we're going to parallel this with some of the Red Sea imagery, that Exodus imagery, that he is also bringing us toward a new promised land. I think that's what baptism is about. He's bringing us to solid ground. 
I believe that Matthew's gospel begins by going to great lengths to, to demonstrate to us how Jesus is a new and better Moses, a new and better Israel for us for our time, that like Moses, Jesus is leading his people out of the throes of death into a better land. You can see it in some of the simple narrative parallels that are carried between Matthew and between Exodus. There's the infant genocide that uh, proceeds uh, you know, by Pharaoh in, in, in Exodus, and then, and then that it surrounds Moses' birth. And then there's uh, Herod's infant genocide, which surrounds uh, Jesus' birth. And then, and then Jesus makes his way into Israel, and then out of Israel, God calls his son, is what he says, that, that Matthew cites that particular passage to reference Jesus coming back out of, out of Egypt, back into Israel. Uh, not only that, but I think that when Jesus is baptized, he's overcoming the waters, like parting the Red Sea, and then immediately following the Red Sea, he is sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to fast to starve and hunger, and he will be tempted by Satan, and he will overcome it by prayer, supplication, by being ministered to the, by the angels. I don't think that's coincidental. I think that's the art of Scripture. I think that's God's intent. That's God's, that's in, in God's wisdom, and God's design, he's allowed us to see that Jesus is pulling us into the promised land because Jesus then comes back out of the wilderness promising, uh, foretelling, foreshadowing, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God, a better land, a better home, a promised land. Jesus' baptism reveals to us the promised land, a future, a hope with God. And he is inviting us to follow after him on the journey there. The baptism of Jesus is an invitation to join him in the new kingdom. Our baptism into Christ is an acceptance of that invitation. Although Moses imperfectly leads Israel to the land God promised for them, Jesus is perfectly leading them to a heavenly kingdom, flowing with milk and honey. The baptism of Jesus, which foreshadows his death, shows us that death itself is a necessary step, but it is not something to be feared. It's merely a threshold. Because Jesus coming out of the waters proves that death is simply something to overcome. Not overcome by you and not overcome by me. Not overcome by anything we do or say, but simply overcome by the atoning blood of Christ. So why was Jesus baptized? To invite you to join him. Jesus was baptized to invite you to join him. The church has held fast to the practice of baptism since even before the Pentecost. And although it has been practiced in various ways among different traditions, it's clear that Jesus' call to the apostles was this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. He is leading his people home. Through baptism, he has parted the seas and he is leading his people to a new promised land, a better kingdom. In fact, there is one more great water which Scripture talks about. In Revelation, uh, we see another great water, and out of it comes the enemies of God to threaten and terrify his people. But rather than conquer God's people with fear, the enemies of God are instead judged by him. And they, ca- and they are cast into the lake of fire themselves instead of us. And as sin and death and Satan are destroyed and drowning in their own chaos, God's people celebrate with the new heaven and the new earth, the new promised land that Jesus is drawing us toward. Revelation 21, 1-4 reads this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
the mystery which has been hidden for generations is revealed in Christ, who was crucified and raised to life. So when we ask, God, why won't you do what you said? We answer, in Christ it is finished. Sin and death, Satan and his demons have no power when up against the powerful work of Christ on the cross. And our assurance is that the sea will swallow them whole while we stand in the eternal presence of God. Do you want to be in that kingdom? Do you want to witness that? I want to make this clear for everyone. Because of his immeasurable love for his children, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the ultimate price for our sins, dying on a cross and rising again to bring eternal life with God, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Today is an honor for us as we uh, get to witness together Elena Ravisky, a young girl uh, in our church. She's going to make the great confession, and, and, and as she accepts Jesus' invitation to join him, Yes, she's young, but she is led to make this decision on account of faith, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and the encouragement of her family and friends. Many of you have already accepted the invitation, and that is wonderful. My prayer is that we encourage each other and stay firm as we walk the road, but there are many here that have not accepted that invitation. And I'm reminding you today that the invitation to the waters is always open. The baptistry is ready to go. You can join Christ today. You can join Elena today in joining Christ into the promised land. You can confess today that Jesus is Lord, that he alone is Savior. Repent of your sins which bind you to the grip of death. Be baptized, and as you rise, be pulled out of the chaos of the waters into eternal life with God. That can happen today. Uh, Allie and Joanne are going to lead us in nothing but the blood. We're going to sing this together. A powerful song, which uh, you know, obviously evokes the image, the, the image of Christ's blood washing over us, almost like its own baptism. I'm going to be standing uh, over here, and Tyson will be on this side over here if you have a uh, decision you want to make, if you, have, uh, if you need prayer, if you need uh, time to simply ask questions. But my hope for you is that you do not hesitate when you feel the Holy Spirit leading you. If God is calling you, then be obedient. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, give us faith. Give us strength, give us endurance, give us wisdom. We thank you for your baptism, Jesus. That at one time it was confusing, but now understanding in our own baptism that actually it's a revelation. It's a mystery revealed that you have come to earth. You've come to earth to die and to be raised to life. And in your resurrection, we can have resurrection too, Lord. Let us follow you into those waters. Lord, may we put to death our earthly self and, and bring to life the spiritual self. God, you are powerful to do it. You are faithful to do it. Remind us that you are faithful. You are good and strong to those who have been baptized, to those who have accepted the call to salvation. Lord, remind us, strengthen us, bolster us. Let us strengthen and encourage one another as well. The road is long, and we ask, Lord, when are you coming? Yet also we take great hope and great joy in knowing that salvation has come by your death and by your resurrection. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for your mercy and grace new with each morning. And it's in your name, your glorious, mighty name, that we pray. Amen.